There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 28 in our series for 2018. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And today's date is Friday, August the 24th. First, I talked to Shane Brett, co-founder and CEO of Gecko Governance. Based in Ireland, Gecko Governance is the world's first reg tech regulatory solution for financial compliance. It recently opened offices in Sydney. Gecko Governance's aim is to expand its existing service offering in bank and fund compliance for businesses by creating a platform that will ensure initial coin offerings are regulatory compliant from start to finish. And then I talked to economist Nicholas Gruen, assessing the Royal Commission into banking. The Commission has generated some horrible revelations of malfeasance and people getting ripped off. Nicholas has views on how we can reform the financial sector. But first, let's talk to Shane Brett. Shane Brett, tell us about ghetto governance. Sure. So we set up Gecko Governance uh, four years ago, Leon. I'd worked in the hedge fund and in the superannuation industry for many years, for nearly 20 years, including over in Australia uh, for many years, in New Zealand, uh, in London, and back here in Ireland. And I found it very difficult when I was running my own consultancy in London to find easy-to-use compliance software for superannuation and hedge funds. And then when I moved back to Ireland, I decided to build it. So that's what the original Gecko Governance product uh, uh, did and does. And we roll that out with a number of big fund companies in both Europe, like DMS, in America, like Grant Thornton. And more recently, we've been working with AMP Capital over in Australia. So we, we, we set up three offices and our headquarters here outside Dublin. 
But we also opened an office in New York and over in Sydney as well. So Australia would be a key part of our kind of growth strategy of the company um, with such a huge uh, funds sector over there and having lived over there myself. So we raised money last year from a Boston-based venture capital company called Cosmo. And those guys put in about a million dollars to help us expand the team to about 12 people. And what we did over the last year is we, we've been building a new product based on our original technology, which was integrated into blockchain. And that solution is specifically for managing compliance and governance for the crypto or what they call initial coin offering or ICO space. So that's a new area of capital formation and fundraising, which ha is pretty much unregulated outside of many countries. And Australia is actually is great because it's right at the forefront of trying to put some rules in place around crypto but the rest of the world is pretty much behind. So what, we, what we've done and what we've been working on is our own project and raising money ourselves through our own ICO and fundraise to build and roll out this new product, which we think will bring, bring better compliance and governance to the crypto space, just like we did over the last few years in the superannuation and hedge fund space. But I mean, how difficult is it? Because there aren't that many rules for uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency. Exactly. So what we've done is we have we've taken two approaches. We there are about seven countries in the world that have put out clear guidelines and rules to be you know to be to be to be um, put in place uh, um, around crypto and ICOs, and they include uh, you know Malta, Singapore, Australia's put out some good rules around cryptocurrency exchanges, uh, the Isle of Man, and you know um, and and over here countries like Switzerland. But the vast majority of countries, including the big economies, have not done anything yet. So what we've done, well, we await the publication of a key report, um, which was due this month, but will probably come out in September, which is the Cryptocurrency Principles Report from the G20. Once that comes out, we're expecting an avalanche of rules to start to appear from the major economies, uh, which will go well into next year. But, but in the meantime, what we have done is we have taken the best practice recommendations from a very interesting non-profit kind of industry body called the, I, um, the, the ICO Governance Foundation. And that, that um, nonprofit is basically proposing a series of about 40 best practice steps to give uh, and, and checks and controls to give investors transparency and accountability and you know, some comfort about their investments. So that's what we put in place in our, in our solution for countries. If you're running an ICO project, say, for example, I, I was talking to guys yesterday doing one out of Tur Turkey or even here in Ireland where there's no crypto rules yet um, and there will be next year. In the meantime, we are using the ICO Governance Foundation's best practice and portfolio of suggested checks that should be done in terms of who are the directors, how are they spending the money, what's the background to them, have they got you know attraction, have they got a history, have any of them been bankrupt, you know, do they have good anti-money laundering and checks in place? And one of the things we're doing, actually, coming, we're really excited about um, over in Australia, you guys have. Um, have the the Australian Digital Assets um, Association, so we're part of that, and and our our colleague who runs the office in Sydney is um, sitting on that round table to basically help and and uh, provide input into the rules that will be coming out of Australia later in the year. So that's very exciting. So we're trying to work closely with regulators and you know assist and be um, provide input into that conversation as these rules are generated, because the current situation where investors are losing approximately nine million dollars a day through scam, scam projects and you know, bad actors can't really continue long term. And in my hedge fund experience, I would have seen something similar many years ago um, after the financial crisis when there was a lot of scandals. And uh, you know, in, in the Northern Hemisphere, an, an avalanche of rules came down um, to, to try and govern 
alternative assets much more tightly. And I think we're at that start of that similar phase in the in the crypto space now as well. How secure is it? I mean, those, that's a key issue with cryptocurrencies is the security around it. A huge, I agree. It's a huge issue. I mean, one of the major, we're obviously raising money ourselves of which part of that is crypto. And we had to spend quite a lot of time finding a really high quality, what I would call digital custodian. So the issue, of course, is that, you know, somebody, it's like one of the old bearer bonds or bearer shares years ago, whereby, you know, the, piece, the person who owned the piece of paper owned the company or all the assets in that bank account. So the problem is that um, a lot of these exchanges where people have um, have traded and you know put their put their, their crypto with it um, haven't been well protected. So we so for our own our own internal purposes, even reviewing the market and trying to find high quality digital custodians that have the same level of checks and security in place as you know a J.P. Morgan of the world would have had was quite a challenge actually. So the the provider we're using in the UK actually have a an underground ex-British Army nuclear bunker where they where they basically hold all the crypto and what they call cold storage. So that that's where it's 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 um you know held on I suppose USB sticks and it's basically disconnected from the from the World Wide Web. But it's um it's one of the major things absolutely holding back the industry and I think with new rules coming out is one of the specific areas for consumer protection that we'll see most of the focus on. Um, as uh, the regulators you know, start to beef up what they, what they require from cryptos. But, I mean, surely you would need a concerted and uh, united stance from regulators around the world to bring in one set of rules for crypto. Well, it's, re- well, it's funny. I'm actually very excited about what you mentioned that because just in the last 24 hours, you'll, you'll see that um, a global, for the first time ever, a global fintech sandbox has been announced. For 11 leading regulators, including Australia, the UK, and the US, for the first time, and what that means, when we, when we, as we've been expanding around the world, in the UK, we would have been doing some work with the um, what's called the sandbox that the regulator has, and similarly in Australia, and what that is is a chance for a new kind of innovative financial technology companies to test their technology in a, in a safe environment before they put it live, you know, dealing with real rules and real consequences. But one of the big challenges had been is that there wasn't any kind of concerted effort globally. Singapore had their own um, sandbox, as they call it. We, 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 we've been trying to get the Irish regulator to put one in place, and they hadn't yet. Similarly, Canada has its own one. And the US, the SEC, the huge regulator over there, wouldn't do anything. And it's only yesterday that the announcement was made in the Financial Times that um, the FCA has managed to get 11 different global regulators on site to enable companies like us to just basically deal with one um, regulatory entity which will cover all those major jurisdictions so that's very exciting development because to take your point trying to do this individually in different countries and when you're a small country to get the regulators on side and it has been a challenge just in terms of resources and bandwidth because the issue is actually getting with all the regulators speaking the same language but very much so i mean we have it here in europe we've got you know since the financial crisis they brought in 32 different pieces of european regulation just for the investment funds and super funds industry alone and even some of the reporting that's required to the regulator, one one sub team will want it in, in one way. For example, they might want Australia as you know AUS on the reporting. Another regulator will want the full name, you know Australia. Somebody else will want Oz. It's it's been very infuriating actually sometimes that you know the the coordination that doesn't happen together. But that's definitely improving. I think the, the particularly on the crypto side, the supranational impact of of crypto in particular, the fact that it's you know. It, it, it's outside um, 
the, the primary jurisdiction of any one specific um, financial regulator means I think there's more opportunities for coordination because the only way they'll be able to control it, I think, is by coming together and trying to establish a global framework. And we saw that a number of years in the US when the US brought in some tax rules called FATCA, where they were trying to find you know, money around the world that US citizens or companies might have hidden. And then the rest of the world basically signed up to it as well and decided to all work on it together in a project called CRS. And that all took a few, that all took a few years, but we do believe that um, in actual fact, for this industry, to grow up, particularly on the crypto side, and for it to attract more mainstream money, it needs to have more mainstream levels of rules and compliance that you would expect when you put money into your super, or you know, you go, you, you sign up with E-Trade or a broker and buy shares on, on the on the ASX. You expect a certain level of protection, and that hasn't been in place. And I've often spoken to many crypto gurus in America who believe compliance is a bad thing, but I'm like, guys, this is holding the whole industry back. You know, like this so it has such a bad smell. Well, that where, whereas if it was governed properly, it could be treated like a proper and another asset class. Same was you know as derivatives or property, and it would attract much more mainstream money, which would mean the prop the crypto prices like Bitcoin wouldn't be volatile and jumping around like crazy, because there'd be more liquidity and money moving around the market. But uh, more- the, but the issue, the fundamental issue, is that uh, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin have a very very bad reputation now in the market, and I think that is holding up the adoption of blockchain. Would you agree with that? I think, yeah, I think historically, I think one of the challenges a few years ago we had, so we started to use blockchain with our, um, an optional integration for blockchain about in September of, of 2016. And initially, everybody just thought of it like um, as Bitcoin. It was the same thing I remember in, in the 1990s when I started working in the early 90s, when, when people associated the internet with email. And it took a while, I don't know if you remember that, but it took a while for people to see that, you know, the, the whole World Wide Web wasn't just Hotmail, there was a lot more there. So on the financial institution side, particularly in the U.S., we found if you're speaking to the bigger companies, they understand that have set up, you know, innovation centers specifically to look at ways that blockchain can help their business. Um, the Commonwealth Bank in Australia have set up a fantastic one in, in London, one of the most impressive offices I've actually ever been in. And they understand at that level that the um, that Bitcoin is not blockchain, that blockchain is a way for them, for them to basically um, streamline tons and tons of processes. And to give you a real example, when I lived in Australia years ago, I would, have done a, I would have done a lot of reconciliation work for some of the big fund managers. And essentially, you know, I was doing that. The, the, the fund administrator was doing that. The bank was doing it. But, but, but with blockchain, each of them, each of those guys can be set up on the same blockchain, which means that that triple reconciliation is completely reduced. And there's only one set of books and records, which, again, from a cost perspective, is very attractive to big companies who are, you know, paying a huge amount in um probably primarily in labor costs and real estate to, to maintain teams to complete reconciliation work when it can all be automated and, um, and you know, ir- irreversible and transparent and secure in the blockchain. Well, Shane, it'll be fascinating to watch the development of blockchain and uh, it'll be fascinating to see the role of Gecko Governance in all of this. And thank you very much for your time. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Gruen. Nicholas Gruen, what's your reaction to the Royal Commission? I mean, are the re- revelations really that surprising? And what's your assessment of its efficiency? Well, it's a monumentally inefficient process, uh, and by that I mean two things, that uh, we are paying QCs $10,000, $15,000 a day for this. None of that was necessary, uh, and it's an incredible trawling exercise. Now, that's not to make light of what it's uncovering, but uh, in many ways what we're seeing is a kind – well, we're seeing – 
a dysfunctional system, the banking system, being investigated by another dysfunctional system, our legal system. And uh, I tend to focus on this um, concatenation of dysfunctionality rather than get get myself in a lather about the misbehaviour in banking, which is, of course, shocking. Uh, But there's misbehaviour everywhere. And we're not really very serious about addressing that misbehaviour. So one of the things that's being shown in the Royal Commission is that, you know, people are... I remember people being shocked and horrified that the AMP would be leaning on its auditor to try to... And and the auditor was... uh, which was Ernst and Young, as I recall, was producing supposedly independent reports on things. Now, I don't think they were independent audit reports, but they were independent reports on various things. Now, uh, excuse me for pointing out the emperor's lack of clothes, but this is the way we have set that system up and pretty much every system up. So if you hear a government talking about a regulatory impact statement or an environmental impact statement or an audit. All of these things are set up where the uh, organisation where we're supposed to have some independent scrutiny of appoints the person, appoints the firm that will be providing the independent scrutiny. Well, hello, what do you think is going to happen? There's going to be endless pressure to gild the lily, to stretch things as far as a discipline will allow to produce a result that is desired. As an economic consultant, I'm part of a market like this, and nobody's really talking about that, and nobody's really talking about the fact that this is a much, in my my view, uh, and in something that I'll publish soon, I call this scandals as far as the eye can see, but we seem to be uh, getting out where we seem to be going through the usual sort of panto, you know, the usual sort of shock horror, isn't this terrible misbehaviour when misbehaviour is baked into the system. Now, what's interesting is the Hawke government uh, implemented a massive period of microeconomic reform, but what went wrong? I mean, why couldn't it tackle an area like finance? So... Well, in some, in many ways, finance was let loose by the Hawke government's liberalisation. The uh, the the Hawke government, the Hawke, really from I suppose something like the duration of the Hawke government, and then things changed. Uh, things began changing almost immediately. Um, the Hawke government pursued a comprehensive agenda of reform. It sort of grew in confidence over a period of time, and I at the time was looking forward to this sort of blossoming into um, a quite far-sighted kind of reform. But in fact, what happened was that intellectually it just fell into laziness uh, and we ended up with this idea that if a ref- uh, we ended up that the, the, the big story that was told was that reform was about making the world more market-oriented and that worked okay where we had stupid regulation, as in, for instance, uh, regulating shopping hours, regulating airline travel, um, imposing tariffs on things. But most of the areas where governments have got themselves involved, uh, utilities, finance is another one, health, education, 
these are areas where you, if you just say, oh, goody, let's be more market-oriented, you don't think make things better. You, 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 quite like, you may not make them worse, uh, but you don't, you're not proceeding in a sort of thoughtful way to identify problems and try and solve those problems. The problem in finance, as in many of these areas, is a, to use jargon that economists use, is asymmetric information. And that simply means that usually sellers can mislead buyers about what they're buying. And that's essentially what we've done in finance. And we have, um, you know, it was fairly clear what we should do, which is that uh, only well, 40% of people describe themselves as um, anxious about, their, about simple budgeting. Now, imagine asking people like that to uh, do due diligence on financial products like wealth management products. So we should have did what we've done in health uh, with Medicare, which is to say we will have a government will go informed purchaser in this den of thieves, <laughs> in this highly sophisticated market. And if people want to and, – and so – Anyone can get basic high-quality service. Um, we might, I'm not suggesting government should pay for that service. They pay for it, but the government provides a government stamp on something which says if you want to save your money safely and professionally, do it with us. And if you want to go elsewhere, that's fine too. We didn't do that. We're forcing people to become consumers that they don't want to be and that they shouldn't. They're actually being more rational than the government in saying, no, no, we want some professional we can trust. We can't do this ourselves. Uh, but that raises a, an important question. I mean, what would be an ideal way then to intensify competition in finance and at the same time ensure there were no more scandals? So, well, I don't know about no more scandals, but the, so, so take superannuation. Um, uh, no one knows what super fund they should go in. Uh, so what we could do is we could say that uh, if you want, if anybody is uncertain about where to put their money, they should be able, on the grounds of competitive neutrality, another bit of economic jargon, uh, which basically says that neither private nor public sector should have unfair advantages over the other. Uh, any person in Australia, since government have set up superannuation funds, professionally managed, low-cost superannuation funds for hundreds of thousands of public servants around the country, anyone should be able to have access to that public to, to those super funds. They're not subsidised, they're just well-managed. So that's a way in which we could be sure that any Australian who felt bamboozled by all this, and let me tell you, that's you know, like it's not a small proportion, it's half, 60, 70%. I'd put myself in the category in many, in many respects because I've got better things to do with my time. Any Australian could simply have the peace of mind to get their money professionally managed. We used to do that with the Commonwealth Bank as well. Um, and it was a pity that we sold it off, but I've also proposed that... We can use the existing structure with the advent of the internet since Westpac, since ANZ can put money on call with the Reserve Bank of Australia, 
and use that money to pay other entities like other banks, uh, we should all be we should all have exactly the same access. We can do that cheaply now over the internet. Uh, these are the sorts of ideas that have just been more or less comprehensively ignored by the Productivity Commission, which was asked to do a study, a major study of competition in finance. Right. Okay. Now, so what would be an ideal report from the Royal, Royal Commission? Um, well, uh, I, the Royal Commission has been asked to look into misbehaviour, um, and so I think it should be trying to throw the book at as much misbehaviour as possible, but that's not going to solve any big problems. Um, so I think it would be – and I don't look to the Royal Commission to provide high-quality economic policy advice, but I would say that what we've done, the mess we're in with things like financial advice – is that we've spent the last 30 years putting more and more lipstick on a pig. So the pig is that the way financial products used to be sold was that we had salespeople working for AMP and other other life insurance companies basically going door to door and football club to football club selling life insurance policies from which the these salespeople would get large commissions, which, of course, came out of the savings of the people buying the life insurance. Now, over the last 30 years, we, these people have morphed into financial advisors. They're poorly educated and their remuneration can never represent the interests of the people they are, quote, advising. So just for a start, rather than put more and more regulations on this sales relationship and in the process put the government's stamp of approval on approved, quote, advisors, where the firms round the back are referring to them as a, as a distribution channel, uh, we need to use an old 19th century law of agency to say uh, people need to be on one side or the other. They, they shouldn't be... Advise, they shouldn't be on both sides of the street here. I doubt, if the, I, I doubt if the Royal Commission will make that advice, but simple rules which, which uh, make clear fiduciary duties are the kinds of things that can, can stop a lot of this misbehaviour. But, but unfortunately, they're not very efficient. And the, uh, so, so, so financial advice would remain high cost, and to solve that problem, we need to build simple products that Australians can access easily. Well, Nicholas Green, we'll be watching it with great interest. And thank you very much for your insights. That's thank very valuable. Thanks a lot, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, US President Donald Trump has criticised his Fed appointee, Jerome Powell, for raising interest rates. He told Republican donors at a Hamptons fundraiser he had expected Powell to be a cheap money Fed chairman. And in an interview with Reuters, Mr Trump said he was not thrilled with the Federal Reserve under his own appointee. Now, Mr Trump had nominated Powell last year to replace former Fed chair Janet Yellen. He said other countries had been helped by their central banks during trade disputes with the US. During this period of time, I should be given some help by the Fed, he said. Other countries are accommodated. U.S. presidents rarely criticise the Fed 
because the agency is independent and that is seen as important for economic stability. But Mr Trump has said he won't be shy about criticising the Fed. US stock prices and the US dollar dipped after Mr Trump's comments. And Greece has successfully completed a three-year Eurozone emergency loan program worth €61.9 billion Euro to tackle its debt crisis. It was part of the biggest bailout in global financial history, totalling some €289 billion, Euro, which will take the country decades to repay. Deeply unpopular cuts to public spending, a condition of the bailout, are set to continue. But for the first time in eight years, Greece can borrow at market rates. The economy has grown slowly in recent years. It's still 25% smaller than when the crisis began. According to the International Monetary Fund, only four countries have shrunk economically more than Greece in the past decade. Yemen, Libya, Venezuela and Equatorial Guinea. The last 61.9 billion euro was provided by the European Stability Mechanism in support of the Greek government's efforts to reform the economy and to recapitalise its banks. The bailout, the term given to emergency loans aimed at saving the sinking Greek economy, began in 2010, when Eurozone states and the IMF came together to provide a first tranche of €20 billion. The European single currency had fallen to its lowest level against the dollar since 2006, and there were fears that the debt crisis in Greece would undermine Europe's recovery from the 2008 global financial crisis. And to Australia. And the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has dumped the emissions reduction target section of his National Energy Guarantee, postponing indefinitely plans to legislate the emissions reduction target. This means the revised scheme will go ahead without federal legislation to stipulate a 26% cut to greenhouse gas emissions. Malcolm Turnbull has conceded there isn't enough support for it to get through Parliament, partly because some of his own MPs would cross the floor on it. The target was a key part of the National Energy Guarantee. However, it faced resistance in the Coalition Party route. And of course, this comes at a time when his political opponents were urging Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton to challenge him for the leadership. And the political instability in Canberra, culminating in the leadership ballot, which saw Malcolm Turnbull fending off the leadership challenge from Peter Dutton, winning the vote 48 to 35, has hit Australian consumer confidence. The ANZ Roy Morgan Australian Consumer Confidence Index fell a sharp 3.5% last week, its third straight weekly fall. And with more than 40% of Turnbull's own party voting against him, there are now questions of whether he can survive another ballot. Ministers have offered resignations and there are rumblings of another challenge. The political instability also saw the Australian share market recording its worst session in five months, with the S&P ASX 200 index falling 60.6 points, or 1%, to 6,284.4 on Tuesday. The index fell below the 6,300 mark for the first time in a week. Now, while the ANZ Roy Morgan survey was carried out before the ballot, it followed the results of the latest Fairfax Ipsos poll, which showed a collapse in the coalition vote, leaving it trailing Labor by 55% to 45% on a two-party preferred basis, pointing to a wipeout in the next election, with a potential loss of 20 seats. And the Turnbull government's signature company tax cut legislation has failed to pass the Senate. The draft law slashing the tax rate from 30 to 25% for companies with a turnover of more than $50 million have been stuck in the Senate for months. Labor and the Greens opposed the legislation, so the Coalition needed the support of the two One Nation Senators and two others to get its bill through. 
Finance Minister Matthias Cormann had offered a compromise to win One Nation's support with an amendment excluding the big four banks from the legislation. But when it came to the vote on the day that mattered, One Nation leader Pauline Hanson and a colleague Peter Giorgio, Centre Alliance's two senators and independent Tim Storer, voted against the plan. As a result, the government could not secure crucial crossbench support for the tax cuts, with the bank carve-out amendment defeated 38 votes to 34. An embattled wealth manager, AMP, has appointed long-time Credit Suisse executive Francesco de Ferrari as its new chief executive, effective from December. Mr de Ferrari has more than 20 years of experience in the wealth management industry, the last 17 of them at Credit Suisse, where he was chief executive for Southeast Asia and Frontier Markets and head of private banking Asia-Pacific. Now, AMP has not had a permanent chief executive since Craig Mellor resigned in late April in the wake of the no-fees-for-service scandal. AMP also lost chairman Catherine Brenner, several directors and the company's legal counsel. In the lead-up to Mr Mellor's resignation, the Royal Commission heard that AMP had lied to the corporate regulator ASIC for almost a decade to cover up its practice of charging customers fees for no service. AMP's former chairman, Mike Wilkinson, has been acting in the chief executive role. AMP said Mr De Ferrari would receive a base salary of $2.2 million with the potential to earn an additional 120% of his salary in short-term incentives and a further 159% in long-term bonuses. And if he can lift his share price to $5.25, he will be paid $5.7 million in shares. And the profit season is in full swing. So here are some of this week's profits. BHP posted a 37% drop in statutory profit to US $3.7 billion, dragged down by impairments and by the costs of the fatal Brazilian mine disaster. Woolworths has posted a 12.5% rise in full-year profit to $1.72 billion. Seven West Media has reported a net profit of $135.8 million for the year to June 30, compared to a loss of $744.3 million a year ago. Seven Group announced a full-year underlying earnings before interest and tax of $496.9 million, up 67% on 2016-17. Ingham's group has posted a net profit for the full year of $114.6 million, up 12.4% on a year ago. Adelaide Brydon's interim net profit climbed to 17.7% to $84.5 million. Car sales has delivered a full-year net profit of $184.8 million, up 68.8% on a year ago. Lendlease has reported an after-tax profit of $792.8 million for the full year, up from $758.6 million a year ago. The A2 Milk Company's financial year net profit totaled $195.7 million New Zealand dollars. That's $178 million Aussie dollars. And that was supported by strong sales in China and Australia. The country's largest builder, Fletcher Building, swung to a net loss for the year, of New Zealand $190 million, that's Aussie $172.7 million. That's down from a previous year profit of New Zealand $94 million. Amcor's full year net profit rose 21.3% to US $724 million, that's $985 million Aussie. Fortescue Metals Group's annual profits fell 58% and the company halved its dividends on the back of the wider than expected iron ore price penalties encountered in 2017-18. Its net profits came in at $879 million, and the US 
$6.89 billion of revenue was lower than the $7 billion expected by the market. All Media delivered a half-year net profit of $9.2 million, up 3.4% from the same period last year. Health insurer NIB reported an 11% rise in annual net profit, boosted by high revenue and the acquisition of corporate health insurance provider GU Health. Its net profit rose to $132.4 million for the year to June 30. That's up from $119.6 million a year ago. Cardno net profit fell to $8.579 million. That's down from $14.02 million a year ago. Perpetual Equity Investment Company's full-year net profit dropped 22% to $24.827 million. Primary Healthcare swung to a full-year net profit of $8.9 million. That's up from a loss of $516.9 million last year. Antel's profit after tax was up 228% to $484.3 million. That's US dollars, and that's $668 million Aussie. But there was a one-off gain of US $345 million stemming from the sale of its condom business. Vet and pet care specialist Greencross's net profit for the year to July was down 50.9% to $20.6 million as a result of previously flagged $22.8 million in impairments. Papua New Guinea's devastating earthquake in February has taken its toll on oil searches' first half profits. They fell 39% to US $79.2 million. That's $107.7 million Aussie. Flexi Group swung to a net loss after tax of $10.3 million for the year. That's down from a profit of $87.4 million the previous year. Mortgage Choices' full-year net profit tumbled 80.9% to $4.2 million. Travel agency group Hello World annual net profit after tax rose 48.4% to $31.9 million. Centre Group which owns and operates Westfield Malls in Australia, posted a 3.6% lift in its 2000 interim net profit to $1.46 billion. Mid-cap oil and gas producer Senex Energy's loss widened to $94 million because of asset write-downs as profits before one-time items saw a turnaround to $2 million compared with a $22.5 million loss the previous year. And Super Retail's net profit for the year to June rose 26% to $128.3 million. And that's it for this week. And next week I have a terrific interview with Fadi Gehar. He runs the technology company Symbol and they offer Australian businesses cheaper energy. It's a terrific story. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBattleZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.